Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. So great to be here on behalf of our Richmond Rosenberg team. It's exciting to be on tour with uh, all of you, and you're our second stop in our Christmas season. So just great to be here with all of you, and great to be here with all of you online. This, so excited to be here, and hope you're having a great time enjoying the Christmas holidays. Wherever you are watching us this morning, or this afternoon, or at dinner time, thanks for joining us for worship. It is a great time of the year. It's the Christmas season. You had a chance to hear from Pastor Xavier last week, and we're in this Carols of Christmas, which I actually love this series. I love doing a, a deep dive into the carols of this season that we've known all of our lives. Songs that we have sung, and uh, we play them over and over in our head, and, and next week you get your own Pastor Mark back, so consider me your fruitcake. You know, I come, I come once a year, some of you like me, some of you don't, but hey, I'm here again. So, you know, you gotta enjoy it while we're here. But it is great, because this is the greatest time of the year, personally, for me. Maybe not for you, but I actually enjoy this season. And you know what's unique about this season? Is that Christmas is really the only holiday that has its own music genre. Think about it, any other holiday. Maybe Halloween has a few songs there, but not many holidays can claim the fact that on November 1st on your radio, you can listen to Christmas music, right? And maybe you're like me and you love Christmas music that much that on November 1st, you're listening. I'm listening big time. I mean, I'll be honest. The last doorbell on Halloween night, when that kid says trick or treat, I give that kid the candy, I close the door, I shut the outside lights on, the tree goes up. True. I get the tree up and I get the lights. Now, my wife's the boss in this area. That's the only thing I have permission. The rest of the decorations don't happen until after Thanksgiving, but I get one item. I just love Christmas. Now, maybe you're like me. Maybe you love Christmas music November all the way straight through. Some of you out here are purists. You're like, uh-uh, got another holiday before Christmas. It's called Thanksgiving. We're not celebrating Christmas ahead of Thanksgiving, so we're gonna wait. Friday after Thanksgiving, then we kind of vomit Christmas out, right? Right? Okay, some of you, amen, some of you are like, no, 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 we're even more of purists. We wait till December 1st, that's the holy month. Then we're gonna listen to Christmas music. And there's some of you out here that are not big fans of Christmas music. You'll tolerate it for about two weeks. Two weeks out, you're listening to it. After Christmas dinner, it shuts off, back to normal life, right? Then there's a few of you in here and need a little help. You listen to Christmas like year round. You're sick. You're, there's a little something going on that you need a counselor. I'm just telling you, if you're listening to it in July, there's something wrong with you. But Christmas is awesome, isn't it? Today we are looking at the carol of O Holy Night. We're gonna look at its history. Because a lot of us have sung that song all of our lives. It's something that it comes out in maybe November and December and we sing it, but maybe we don't know the history behind it. Maybe we don't know what the verses are saying to us and we're gonna look at that today. We're gonna do a deep dive into this song because I think it's so powerful. I really, it really talks about the power of scripture and the power and presence of Jesus in our lives. And I'm hoping that this morning you'll look at it in a new way today when we finish. A little bit of its history. Back in 1843, there was a church in a very small town in France. Uh, the priest of that church had an organ that was over 100 years old. And they were renovating this organ and he wanted to do a huge celebration on Christmas Eve to kind of commemorate the restoration of this organ. 
So he went out into town and he found a local poet, a poet that he encouraged to write a poem that could either be recited or sung at this Christmas Eve service for this celebration. He found a man named Placid Capot. Here's a picture of Placid Capot on the screen. Now, Placid Capot was a, um, has an interesting story. He's a poet. He sold alcohol. He was a wine merchant. And he was a lawyer. Quite the combination. And he's been tasked to write a poem. And he comes up with a poem, a three-verse poem that would describe Christmas. And he wrote it, but you got to notice something. There's some interesting things about Placid. You notice he doesn't have a right hand. <clears throat> Early on in his life, a friend of his shot it off by accident with a gun, and he had to have it amputated. So while all of his friends were going down to the docks to work, manual labor, and you know, <clears throat> bring in income, he had to learn to adjust to life without a right hand. He had to learn how to learn, write with his left hand. He had to learn how to just apply his life in a different direction, so he started to study and write. And all of that led to him using his setback in his life to be a step forward to success. In, in that alone, there's a sermon. So he learned how to adjust without a hand, and he learned how to write and study, and he comes up with this this beautiful poem, this three-verse poem that would eventually become what we know today as O Holy Night. And he wrote it, and he actually titled it, back in French, it was titled Minuit Christian, which means Midnight Christian. And it was a poem written for Christians to embrace Christmas and all that it was. And he wrote this, and eventually it made it into the hands of this man, Adolf Adam. Adolf Adam was a composer of operas and ballets. That's what, what he wanted to be known for. He wanted to be known for a guy that did operas and ballets, but yet what he becomes famous for is adding the music score and the melody behind this three-verse poem. Here's a guy who is out there doing operas and ballets, and what he's known for is com combining with Placid Capot to be able to orchestrate this beautiful song that would just spread like wildfire throughout the country and beyond. And it did. It was a big, you know, you got the combination of these two and there's a big success and this song takes off and the celebrations of Smash on Christmas Eve and it goes off and people in France um, are listening to this song over and over and it's spreading and people who had visited France now are bringing it back to North America. And it ends up in the hands of a guy named John Sullivan Dwight. And you'll see a picture of him. Him and I are rivaling right now for best beard. You notice that? He's got a good Santa beard going on there. But he is a minister, but he's also a music critic and an abolitionist. He was highly spoken against slavery in the United States. But he gets a hold of this Minui Christian song, Midnight Christian, and he loved it so much that he begins to massage it around and changing the words around so that it would fit in the English language. He doesn't change the theme of it, but he just changes it so that it has flow, and that's what eventually would become O Holy Night. And then one last bit of history, Reginald Fresedin was an engineer from Canada. He's living in the United States, but he is responsible for creating Amplitude modulation, or as you and I know, AM radio. 
And he's working on how to get music and voices to carry through radio waves at the same time in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when the military, our military, is trying to find a way to communicate more effectively from the bases on land to their ships in the ocean. Over the years, they've been using Morse code, but they want a more uh, refined way, a a better way. And Reginald Freston communicates, reaches out to the military and says, I think we have a way. I want you to tune in, tune in to a radio station on Christmas Eve at 7 p.m. And this is in 1906. So the military tunes in, and on that night, Reginald, he read Luke chapter 2 at the, on the first ever radio broadcast, the story of the birth of Jesus. And then he grabbed the violin that you see there, that same very violin, and he played All Holy Night. And the military got to hear that in 1906 on Christmas Eve, the first ever radio broadcast. I, think, I just think that's pretty cool history of why we have and what's the basis behind Oh Holy Night. So now let's kind of dive into what Placid wrote about and why it's so significant to us. Let's look at the background to this. And we're going to look at it verse by verse. So we're going to look at the first verse. The first verse of whole, Oh Holy Night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Placid shows us in the first verse that something actually happened in history. Jesus was born. He actually existed. He lived on this earth. There's an actual date that we have. Some of us believe it's December 25th. Some others are unsure. We don't really know the exact date that Jesus lived, but he did. It happened. It happened in this world at this time thousands of years ago and what we find out the first thing we learn from placid in his oh holy night song is that christmas is historical jesus is historical he existed he lived he lived on this earth he grew up he had significance now some people have said you know i'm not certain about this virgin birth thing and i'm not certain that this guy performed miracles People can argue all kinds of things, but many scholars worth their weight actually believe wholeheartedly, 100%, that Jesus lived, that he's history. And it's not just because of the Bible stories and not just because of the teachers in the first century church, but there are Roman theologists, Roman scholars, guys like Josephus and Tatticus who claim that a man was born and had significant impact in the world and performed miracles and then eventually was crucified that this Jewish rabbi actually lived. So if you're a skeptic of Christianity, you have to see the fact that it's not just the Bible that proclaims that Jesus lived but it's people outside of Christianity, outside of the church that said, yes, this man existed. So when you see that, you say, you know what? I believe it. I believe that Jesus lived. He's historic. There was a guy named Jesus who was born, who lived, who taught, who had significant impact in the world. And then it goes on in the next couple lines in the first verse, and it says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Placid is talking about the condition of the world at that time. Before Jesus arrives on the scene, there had been a 400-year period where God was silent. The world had been, it was falling apart. Man was in a sinful way. It was a dark world. It was spiraling out of control. And there was a need for someone to come and restore humanity. 
There was a need for someone to show up to bring us back to God. We needed someone to come to save us and to lead us back to restoration in God. So we have this condition that's really bad. And then it says in the song, he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Jesus is gonna appear in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of a sinful world, in a place where the world is just falling apart. People are gonna recognize him. And they're gonna hear his teaching and his teaching's gonna have impact in his life and it's gonna cause a stir in the souls of men. And then we're gonna see after Jesus' death and resurrection, we're gonna see this huge spread of the message of Christianity go out throughout the world because of the impact that Jesus had living on this earth. So Christmas is historical. It happened. The other thing you need to know is that Jesus fulfills prophecy. That's historical. Because we have the history of the Old Testament. Here we have these old, sacred Jewish writings in the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, it points to this coming Messiah. We have these prophecies that were written about this man who would come on this earth and he would be the Messiah. And he wouldn't be a normal man, it would be an extraordinary man. It would be the Messiah who would come for all of mankind and would do for ourselves what we couldn't do ourselves. He would bring justice, he would bring light, he would establish a kingdom on the earth, an eternal kingdom. And we have these incredible prophecies. We, we even read about one of those prophecies in Luke chapter two, which is the Christmas story. We see that in the Christmas story in Luke chapter two, the mention of Micah, which is a book in the Old Testament, in chapter five, verse two, it talks about Jesus coming and where he would be born. Micah was written 500 years before Jesus was born. Look what it says in Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah now. Stop right there. Bethlehem, 500 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, is this very small, insignificant village. There's probably one stop sign. You probably would blink and you would miss it. It's insignificant. It's tiny. It's made up of small clans. That's why we sing the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Little referencing the fact that it was just small, insignificant. But out of Bethlehem comes this eternal person, not a normal person from old ancient times, but an eternal person who would emerge out of Bethlehem of all places and is gonna rule. And so when wise men come, they're looking for the star, they end up in Jerusalem, they're following the star, they end up in Jerusalem, and they talk to the teachers and the scholars and they, they point back to Micah. And they say, you know what? It sounds like he's being born in Bethlehem. You should go there. And so the wise men make their way there. And it's just, it's not just that Jesus fulfilled one prophecy. He fulfilled many. A couple more here. In Isaiah, it talks about the Messiah being born of a virgin. In the Old Testament, it talks about the fact that Jesus would be born in the line of David. That's why in Matthew chapter one, we have this huge family lineage and we're like, why are these people even in here? I don't even know how to pronounce their names, but it was to indicate that Jesus came out of that line. Jesse being David's father, that whole family line would lead to Jesus. We have a story, and we have a mention, a prophecy in the Old Testament where Mary and Joseph would be warned that the king, after Jesus is born, would be out to kill all the babies and they would be warned to flee and to go to Egypt. So we have these prophecies, just four prophecies right there that Jesus fulfilled. Never mind the fact that he actually fulfilled over 300 prophecies. 300. 
So even if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you don't believe the Bible, I have to ask, how do you account for the fact that all of these prophecies that were written over a thousand year period would be fulfilled by one guy who ends up changing the entire world? Now let's look at the last portion of verse one. It says this, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. If Jesus is the son of God, and if he's fulfilled the prophecy and all the things that he said are true, then we have hope. We have hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. And then there's an eternity with God. There's hope because of who Jesus is and who he said he was. The weary world rejoices. Now follow with me this logic. If Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago, okay, the history behind it, he fulfilled the promises of the prophecies and then all the things he said were true, then what do we have? We've got hope, everlasting hope. Not a hope so, but a hope for. And there's this new and glorious morn that we get to embrace every single day. Every day that you and I wake up, there is hope in our life. There's a promise of that hope because of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and what he did in his life. And that's just incredible and it's historic. Jesus changed the world. His impact in the world continues today. It continues to influence Western culture. It continues to affect the world. You think what's happening in the Middle East has, not, has something to do with today? What's happening in the Middle East is because of what happened when Jesus came to this earth. His impact continues to spread throughout the world. It's shaped and it's rooted in the teachings of Jesus. He changed the world. We can't even imagine. We can't even put our finger on the fact of how much Jesus and his teachings have changed this world. And that's just all in the first verse, friends. That's crazy to think about it. Just in one verse of this song, Jesus came. Christmas is historic. Jesus is historic. He's a figure who made a difference. And now let's jump into verse two. It begins this way. Led by the light of faith. Serenely beaming with glowing hearts, by his cradle we stand. This is pretty cool, but you obviously know it's a metaphor because we can't stand right now before his cradle. At one point, the shepherds did. <clears throat> they made their way down. They found the manger. And they came in and they saw Jesus and they stood before the, the manger and they worshiped. And then the wise men came. They followed the star. It took them to the manger. What happened? They bent down. They bowed down. They gave gifts. They worshiped Jesus. So we have this moment where the author of this song is saying like in the same way that they had to go and find Jesus, we come in a sense to the manger, to the cradle. We come to Jesus and what began as something historic now becomes something that's personal. Christmas is personal. So Christmas, it's great to sing songs about the manger, beautiful rendition of Away in the Manger this morning that we heard, and we have this image of this cradle in, in, in a manger in a, in a barn, and we have all of this, and it's a, that's the power of Christmas in its history, per se. But in the Christmas message, the person of Jesus needs to become personal to us. It's just not about thinking about shepherds, little baby, uh, little kids wearing shepherd outfits, going to a made-up cradle, uh, cradle in a Christmas cantata, if you will, a Christmas play, and it's fun to see that. But it's more about us bending our knees, giving our hearts 
to Jesus and coming before him and worshiping him. That's the personal. The question is not about why Jesus came, it's how we respond to the fact that he came. In the song, Placid points out the wise men, but I wanna make certain we don't miss the shepherds in this because here they are in the fields, right? They're tending their flocks and this angel shows up and they're freaked out and they're like, what is this? And the angel then leads the shepherds to a place. Look what it says in Luke chapter two, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. How many of the people? All the people. Does that include people of every, uh, every skin color? Yes. Does that include every gender? Yes. Does that include everybody from any social economic background, poor and rich? Yes. Every religion? Yes. Good news was for everybody, all people. And this is an important part of the gospel. This is the good news that it's actually for everybody. If you have breath, it's for you. If you have a heartbeat, it's for you. This message was for all people. And then it goes on in verse 11 of Luke 2. It says, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So it's for everybody. It's for you, it's for me. It's for those that don't know Jesus. It's for your neighbors, it's for your coworkers, your family. It's available to everyone, but we must embrace it personally. Even in the announcement of the angels to the shepherds, they're like, hey, the Savior's been born, but in order for him to become your Savior, you need to go to him. You need to embrace him personally. You need to go and worship him personally. You gotta come to him. And that's the invitation in this song. It's like, okay, Christmas is historic, but Jesus was alive, and we get that, but what am I gonna do with this? Am I going to go to him personally? Am I going to embrace him personally? Is he going to matter to me, or am I just going to accept for what he did historically? And now it's going to point to the wise men. The next part of verse 2 says, So led by the light of a star sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from the Orient land. So they're following this glowing light in the sky, this star in the sky, and it leads them right to the manger Wise men coming in from the east, traveling far, had read in the, in the old saint, uh, sacred writings that the Messiah had come. They're going to find him. They're going to find him. And what they have, they determined that this man was just not an ordinary man, not an ordinary baby, not an ordinary child, but the Messiah. Wise men weren't going to travel this distance just for any old baby. There was something significant about this birth. And then we read in Matthew's gospel, in chapter two, verses one and two, it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of the parade, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We want to find him. We want to make it personal. We want to experience the Messiah. We saw his star and we've come to worship him. They knew something significant had happened and they needed to embrace it personally. It's where the historic becomes the personal. And here's the big idea, God comes to us and that's what Christmas is. Emmanuel, God with us, God comes to us because we needed him. We didn't ask him to. He came to us because he said he would and he said he would come to save us. 
He comes to us, he comes to everyone for the purpose of saving us, and that's great news. We need that in our lives. We want him to come to us, but now we need to go to him so we can, we can go to church, we can read our Bibles, and we can take it for granted that Jesus came for us. We can say, God, thanks for coming to us. It's awesome, thanks for forgiving me. I'm just gonna sit back and enjoy that peace. But that's not what Placid is writing about. That's not what the Bible tells us. And here's the thing, he comes to us. He comes to us when we were his enemies. He comes to us because he knew we needed him. I bet when the wise men finally get there and they realize who they're experiencing and it becomes personal, they go, you know what? God came to us and now it was our time to go to him. It had to become personal. God went out, Jesus went out and invited the 12 disciples to be his best friends and to follow him. He said, follow me, right? He called them to him and then eventually they discover that it had to become personal. For them, it became personal in a boat when the boat was about ready to sink in a terrible storm and Jesus is in in a nap, (laughs) having a nap in the front of the boat and Jesus, we're gonna die and Jesus wakes up, calms the storm and they go, okay, this is personal. This is God. Remember the scene where Jesus and Peter are talking and they're talking about who Jesus is and Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the son of the living God. And the light bulb goes on and Peter, Peter came, Peter was called by Jesus, but now Peter responds and goes and makes it personal with Jesus. He comes for us and then we go to him. We respond, it's personal. It becomes a personal relationship with him. It's not one-sided. You don't have friendships that are just one-sided. You don't have relationships that are just one-sided. Healthy relationships and healthy friendships are two-sided. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. We know stuff about God, we understand things about God, but we've gotta pursue him. It's gotta be personal, and that's what Christmas is about. It's not only historic, it's personal. And then we look at the last few words in the second verse. It says, the king of kings lay thus in a lowly manger in all our trials born to be our friend. King of kings, thus in a lonely manger. I mean, we could stop right there. The king of kings born in a feeding trough. Kings and queens today are born with fanfare, paparazzi, Gucci slippers, and all the good stuff, the best doctors, the best hospitals, everything you know about kings being born. Our king was born in a barn. Our king came humbly. Our king came to love us and to serve us. No deity, no other religion in this world can claim that their king came born in a manger to be humbled and to serve others. On the contrary, those religions demand that they be respected and they be elevated, they be put at the top, at the throne, and worshiped above for who they are, not for what they did and how much they loved. But our God, capital G, came down on this earth in human form to love us, to serve us. This is mind-altering stuff historically when you think about the fact that our lives have been shaped by him in a manger, a boy in a manger. And it has had impact over the last 2,000 years. So we have this event, Jesus came, it's historic. We have this now this personal aspect of embracing Jesus for who he is. We come to him personally, it's historic, it's personal, and now we move on to the third verse, and this is where it gets a little interesting. 
Beginning in verse three, it says, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Note these words, Jesus taught us to love one another, that his law is love. I want you to remember that. His law is love and his gospel is peace. We've got the historic and then we have the personal and now we have the transformational. Christmas is transformational. If someone says, I I believe that Jesus was born, I believe that he fulfilled all the prophecies, I believe that we come to him personally and we engage him personally, the author of the poem, Placid, says that if that's the case, then it should change us, that it should transform our lives. If we believe that he came, that he did all that he said he would do, and that we embrace him and it's a personal relationship with him, that it should change who we are. We just can't say, yeah, I believe that Jesus existed. Yeah, I've embraced him personally, but we're still treating people like a jerk or unkind. It should change us. People should see a difference in us because the story of Christmas transforms us. So it's not the history behind Christmas. It's not just the, the personal side of who Jesus is and who he is to us, but it should change, change us, transform us. There has to be something different about us because of what Jesus did in our life and what he did personally. So when when Placid wrote these words, his law is love, he's actually speaking about John chapter 13. He says in verse 34, John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is Jesus' sort of farewell sermon before he goes to the cross with his disciples. And he's teaching them this new command. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, if we get to choose how to love, we're going to define it our own way. You love me, I'll love you. You treat me bad, I'll treat you bad. You get me a $20 Christmas gift, I'll get you a $20 Christmas gift. We try to balance it out. If this, if that. We try to look at it that way. But Jesus said, that's not what I'm saying. That's not the gospel message I'm saying here. Jesus doesn't say love others the way they loved you. He says love one another as I have loved you. That's how you're to love one another. You know, he's like saying to his disciples, you know how I came as the Messiah, but yet here I am washing your feet? Do likewise. You know how I came here to sacrifice my life for you? Do the same for others. If somebody hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. See, they'll know who you are by how you love them based on how I loved you, Jesus says. We don't get to define love as a Christian. You don't get to define it. I don't get to define it. We can't say, this is the way I'm going to love you. We're to love people the way Jesus loved us, period. This kind of love, this kind of love changes the world. It changes and melts the hardest of hearts. It's a game changer for all of us when we love the way Jesus wants us to love, his way, his, his love. And then Jesus says, if you love people the way I loved you, people will know you're my disciples by the way you love them. So, and then here's what he says in the next section. Takes it a next step, a little deeper. In the third verse, it says, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. This was written in the mid-1800s, toward the latter part, going into the next century. 
And what we have here is the French Revolution going on. Landowners were the only ones in France at this time that could vote. The poor and the women could not vote. So landowners would scratch each other's back and determine policy and rules and laws. And it was at the detriment of these people who were poorer and the women. And what would happen then is that this revolution start up. And when this song gets to America, to this guy, this music critic, this minister who was against slavery, he massages these words and says, you know what? This song has to say something different because ultimately our slave is our brother and that Jesus' love will create equality amongst all people. And then it goes on to say, the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. I want to go back to the original poem, Minui Krichong, Midnight Christian. Here, the author, Placid, is writing this and he's saying, you know, Christmas is historic, it's personal, it's transformational. But you have to understand a little bit about what Placid is writing about from his perspective. Here's a man who wrote this over 175 years ago. Guess what, he wasn't a believer in Jesus. He wasn't a follower, he wasn't a Christian. He wrote it and he said, you know what? (laughs) This is how it ought to be. He says that if Jesus really came and if it's historically true, then it must be personal. And once it becomes personal, it must transform. In fact, he wrote those words. They were a critique of the church of that day that were led by apathetic, apathetic snob pastors who, who looked down their noses at people lower than them. And he called out to them and he said, fall on your knees, be humble. Have Christ impact your heart so that you can make a difference through the love of Jesus. So he's looking at these people and he's looking at the time that he wrote this and he said, you know, if I were a Christian, this is how my life should be. This is the way it ought to be, that he came, he transforms, that it's historic, it's personal, it's life-changing. And this man penned this 175 years ago and today it still resonates that deeply. And maybe for the first time today, you're gonna look at Oh Holy Night a little differently. So before we close the service, I just thought it would be cool to sing it, sing it as a church, and I've well brought the worship team back on, and would you stand, and then let's, let's sing Oh Holy Night as we wrap up this service.
God, we thank you that on a holy night, you came to this earth. You didn't have to come, you did. You knew we needed you. In this season, we celebrate the history of the birth of Jesus. We celebrate that, Lord, we can have a personal relationship with you, a friendship with you. We can talk to you anytime, that we can do life with you and that you're always with us, never leaving us. And Lord, we're so thankful that your life transforms us and changes us. So Lord, thank you that you are God with us, that this season is more than just Christmas, but it's you and the power of you in us. Thank you, Lord, for for just always being with us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.